And let's, uh, before I read the text, as I look up there, that all temperatures will be checked. Let's pray for that. (laughs) So much to be anxious about uh, today. So uh, we're to the end of Nehemiah. And I'm going to read all 31 verses to you uh, because to understand what's going on here, we need the whole chapter. Um, and let me just alert you to, to what, what's going to happen here in Nehemiah uh, 13 is uh, it's not a happy ending to uh, all that uh, Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah uh, tried to do. And so that, uh, that, that'll, that'll be a good sobering and kind of bracing uh, a place for us to settle uh, today. So... Let me, uh, let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll jump in on this text. Lord, we thank you today that um, all our attempts of uh, human righteousness, all our attempts of achieving our own perfectibility always fail miserably, uh, either through our own self-righteousness or our own uh, uh, selfishness or disregard for the truth. And so we pray today that you would uh, teach us through what you did Uh, in Nehemiah and uh, these people that we're going to read about uh, this morning. So bless us, open your word to us by your spirit, we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. So let me just give you a a once over about how things are going to go here, because 12 years transpires as we read read this, this chapter. So the first four and a half to five verses happens right after. Remember last week we saw the the dedication of the wall when they marched around the wall and had the worship service that ended in the temple. Uh, So the first five or so verses happen uh, with that. And then uh, the rest of the chapter is what happens 12 years uh, later, right? Uh, And one of the things that we're going to read about in the passage that that may strike you as odd is Nehemiah actually is absent from Jerusalem most of those 12 years, because we, we tend to think of Nehemiah as this religious figure and that sort of thing. But Nehemiah's job, he was a civil servant of the Persian Empire. And so he gets called back uh, to uh, Artaxerxes' court for 12 years. And then the rest of the passage is what he finds uh, on his return. So uh, in light of that, let me read to you uh, Nehemiah 13, verses 1 through 31. Uh, It's printed there. It's on the screens behind me. This is the word of God. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering. Remember Tobiah, if you've been following along with us, he's one of the bad guys uh, early on uh, in the story, same Tobiah. So prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by the commandment to the Levite singers and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. 
And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. That's a theme we're going to see in this text. Nehemiah stays ticked off this whole chapter, uh, and just wait. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and wine and oil into the storehouses, and I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zachar, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for this service." In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you're doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And uh, laying hands on them is not uh, like ordination, like I'm blessing you. It's, uh, It's what you would think. So from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Now remember how the chapter started, right? That they had read from the book of Moses uh, about uh, this uh, issue of intermarriage, right? So here we are at the end of the chapter, and it's happening right among them. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Well, I'll explain that. <laughs> uh, the kids that are remaining in here, you can never pull somebody's hair out because you think God wants you to do that because he doesn't want you to do that, okay? Uh, let me be clear about that. And I made them take an oath in, this, in, in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons 
or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Senballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they've desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. So here's, here's the thing, you know, if in, in a, a, a most human stories that we read, we uh, like to have as the last act of the story, you know, everything resolves and everybody lives happily ever after. Right? That's, that's what we would like. Because remember, last week, you know, the, the work was kind of completed. The, the wall was done. They dedicated it. They had that great worship service. They marched around the wall. They ended up at the temple. They were reading the law of God. It was a great thing. And so in many ways, you wish the story had ended right there, right? That, that, that was it. Now, I don't, I don't know about how you think about literature and how you think about stories and fairy tales and, and, and that sort of thing. But uh, honestly, you know, the, the, uh, I, I like stories that don't resolve. And, and the reason why I like stories that don't resolve is because uh, we are eager to settle for often a resolution of a narrative that is not really a resolution, right? That by our own means and our own devices, we will make peace with and make prosperity with uh, things that we shouldn't. And so what we have here is that the, the result, you know, the, the, after, after this great project of Ezra and Nehemiah returning to the people, rebuilding the temple, rededicating themselves. Remember uh, earlier in the book, they had that great covenant renewal ceremony where they stood outside and read the, read the law of God for six hours. They made a covenant with God whereby they said that they would not do these things. And then over a period of 12 years, they failed. They failed. They failed miserably, right? And that's part of the reason why Nehemiah has the strong reaction that he does is because he was present with them. He helped write and, and helped lead them to this place where they determined that because of the goodness of God, because of his grace of restoring them back there to Jerusalem, they would not fall into these things. But they did. They did. Uh, everything that they promised that they would not do, they ended up doing. It's pretty pretty interesting picture, isn't it? So uh, one of the things that you, you have to see about this is, and one of the things that we have to carry away from this is, how, how does this work itself out and how do I apply this 
today in the way in which I live and the way I think about uh, my life before Christ. Well, we're going to we're going to look at that. So the first thing we need to do today is look at those first four verses where it talks about the Ammonites and the Moabites, right? And it says uh, they remembered that when Israel was coming into the land uh, that they needed some bread and they needed some water and the Ammonites wouldn't do that for them. And then they encountered the Moabites. And remember the Moabites hired Balaam, the false prophet who talked with the, or the donkey talked with him and all, all of that sort of thing. And that ended up falling apart as well. And so what as a result of that, uh, the Lord said, you know what, we're, we're not, um, that these people are committed to be in opposition to the people of God and therefore in opposition uh, to the Lord. And so as a result of that, we're going to cut ourselves off from them. Now, we read this with modern eyes today and we look at this and this sounds like racism to us. Right? It's, it, it sounds like racism. We're going to cut these people off because they're a certain way. The fact is, it's not that at all. It's not. Um, because here's the thing. If, if the descendants of Moabites were not allowed to be there in the city of Jerusalem, then everybody who is a descendant of David would have been thrown out. Because King David... The great king was a descendant of a Moabite girl named Ruth. Right? And so if, if all of the descendants of Moabites were, were thrown out, what, what would that have looked like? So what the point here is uh, folks who identify themselves as being in opposition to the people of God people who are not uh, a part of the community of faith, people who are not uh, worshipers of the one true God, they were to be excluded in marriage. And, and, and the point of that is, is a pretty profound thing as, as, as Nehemiah goes on to point out later on in the chapter that, you know, Solomon was this great king. We, we look back on him and we, we you know, we, they held him up, you know, as, as this great wise uh, king at, at, when Israel was kind of at, at the apex of its power. And the reason why uh, he failed ultimately was these marriages to women who were uh, worshipers of idols. They led him astray, and therefore they led the nation astray. So we read that and we think, you know, that, that just seems like a, 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 that seems like a tough thing. But the, the fact of the matter is the, the, what the people are coming to grips with and what we have to come to grips with um, is uh, this principle that uh, the people of God uh, uh, marry within the people of God. And that's simply uh, what uh, the, this, this commitment means. Now, what we note here is, as we see uh, these, uh, uh, the people there in Jerusalem making their peace with, with other folks, what we see is that they're compromising bit by bit, day by day, year after year, uh, with the culture, with the world, with the folks that are around them, Right? And so, uh, right off the bat, as we, as we read this, we, what we'll, we'll see is that there are four areas that the people had committed themselves to that they failed dramatically in. 
uh, first of all, they allow the temple to be compromised. They take this, this guy. Uh, I just, I just think it is, 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 is so awesome that Tobiah, who had been an enemy of, of Nehemiah, who had been an enemy of, of getting the, uh, uh, wall built, uh, worms his way into the good graces of Elisha, the priest, and the priest actually cleans out a section of the temple, uh, 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 rooms in the temple where they stored the things that they did for worship and moves this guy in there. <laughs> he takes up residence in the temple. Now, I, I, it, it, I'm sure there was some... Uh, uh, you know, some tit for tat there or something like that. But anyway, that, that, that gives you a picture of the religious leaders, the, the, the temple keepers, the priests themselves are willing to make this kind of compromise. They're willing to do this sort of thing where they actually take the enemies of the people of God and move them into the temple, removing the things out of the temple that were there for the temple's worship. The other thing uh, that uh, Nehemiah notices is, is that giving to the temple ministry has really fallen off, right? So much so that the Levites and the, and the folks that worked in the temple, their uh, livelihood has dried up. And so they've moved away. They're no longer working there uh, in the temple. They're outside of Jerusalem now working in their fields, trying to make a living, trying to be able to provide for their families. Thirdly, he notices that uh, the, the Sabbath has become like a farmer's market day where uh, they're in the streets of Jerusalem. They're making wine and they're selling fish and they're selling their produce and, and commerce is going on all the time. Now, why, why was that such a big deal? Well, remember, God wanted his people to keep the Sabbath as a marker of the fact that they would do commerce six days a week and that God was so gracious they could rest on the seventh day knowing, knowing that God would provide for them. So they're acting just like the folks around them with no concern for that at all. And then lastly, this uh, intermarriage outside the faith is uh, a, a thing that is running through uh, the people. And it is so bad uh, that the children from these marriages, he, he, he mentions that they don't even know the language of the people of God. And so it's not just a matter of, you know, some sort of weird assimilation or anything like that. It's an issue of they, they are uh, uh, children, uh, the, the fruit of these intermarriages are faithless, just as their parents were faithless. And they've not been trained or taught uh, uh, the, who the one true God is. And so it's a mess. It's a big mess. Um, and, 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 and what makes it an even bigger mess is that within 12 years of them making the commitments that they made, they're all now broken. They're all broken. Now, one of the things that I think is true of, of most human beings and, and most uh, periods of time in history, you know, we, we kind of look at ourselves and we think we've made such progress, Right? We're so much smarter, better than the people who went before us. And yet what this text tells us is, is that no, outside of the work of God and the lives of people and outside of, of his uh, a constant and consistent work with us, we will fall away. We'll fall away. 
And, and not only that, that we can't even find salvation. We can't even improve ourselves. We can't even, you know, by an act of the will or an act of, of just our stiff upper lip, you know, just make ourselves better because over time, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they never die until we die are going to do their work on us. Now, the, now the thing that could, could happen in this is you could be tempted in this kind of scenario to be hopeless. You could be tempted uh, to think poorly of yourself or you could think, well, then it doesn't matter what I do. I can just go and do whatever I, I want to do. But the fact of the matter is what you have to see about this text and what you have to see about us is the reality of the heart of God for his people. Because Nehemiah returns and he, he addresses exactly what's going on here. Now, when we read about uh, Nehemiah and we, we, we see him uh, saying, you know, Lord, uh, bless me, Lord, you know, judge me appropriately as we do this. You have to remember, this is his, his diary that he's writing these things in. So I'm not sure in his own mind and heart he intended for us some thousands of years later to be reading what, what he was thinking. But the, but the other thing that he sees is he loves these people so much that he does not want to happen to them what happened to their ancestors. The fact that they were deported, that their faithlessness and their, their turning away from what was true, their turning away from the covenant making and covenant keeping God led to the, the, their being carried off by the Babylonians in the first place. And so he loves them enough to come and to challenge them. Now, this crazy story about where he says, I don't, I don't really have a problem with him throwing that guy's furniture out of the temple. I think he had that coming. That's, I'm okay with that. And I even like that he sterilized the place. Kind of reminds me of what we do, you know, after the people that come to the nine o'clock service. You know, we, we got we to gotta sterilize the place, you know, because they were in here, right? <laughs> oh, I just... So it's such a weird time to be alive. But, uh, uh, and we don't sterilize it after y'all because we think whatever y'all brought in here will be dead by uh, uh, nine o'clock next Sunday. So, um, but it is, it, it's, it's, a, it's this crazy story of him pulling their hair and uh, beating them. You're like, wow, that, that is, that, can you recommend that? I mean, because I know that there are some of you who think, ah, this gives me a text now to go beat people and pull their hair because, or be mean or super uh, violent with them when I see people being disobedient. Well, if we had the time, we could do an in-depth study of the judicial laws around these sorts of things, going back into Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Suffice it to say that there were punishments and there were sanctions for people uh, for their disobedience that involved having their hair cut off and uh, beatings as a result of a a judicial uh, uh, process, right? So, you know, again, that's still kind of hard for us to hear. But what I don't want you to carry away from this is Nehemiah, some sort of wild man running around, you know, beating people up and tearing the hair out and and that sort of thing. And everybody's kind of scared of Nehemiah and staying away from him. That's not that's not what's happening here, more than likely. That is that is not what what's going on. But the thing is, it is interesting to note and it is worthwhile for us to think a bit about his heart 
that he loved these people enough um, that he would disrupt their lives, disrupt what they were doing, to point out to them their alienation, their failure to keep their commitment, and the danger, the spiritual danger that they had placed themselves in. Now, most people, most people do not like to confront. There's a handful of you who, who love confrontation. There's a handful of you who love to get in fights. And there's a handful of you who love to be in awkward, hard conflicts with people. But the vast majority of you don't like it. Praise God. That's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. However, one of the things that becomes a problem with that is when we are uh, uh, confronted by people's disobedience and we don't ever address it. I came across this quote this week. The only thing worse than being chastened is not being chastened. In other words, it is a it is a hard thing and it is a terrible thing. And sometimes we are tempted to be ashamed or tempted to, to feel bad about ourselves when someone confronts us about our sin. But when somebody loves us enough to confront us, you know, rather than come back with self-justification or shame or those sorts of things, to simply accept that as a gift of love is a mark of the real work of God in us. Nehemiah loves these people enough that he's going to come to them and he's going to confront them with what's going on. When we don't do that, it's not simply a matter of courage that we lack to confront sin with people. It's actually a, a, a matter of unbelief because when, when someone sins, listen, there's a quick and easy way to deal with that. It's the gospel. When you don't confront sin, what you're saying is you don't believe the cross of Christ. You don't believe the gospel. You don't believe the Holy Spirit uses these things to confront folks, to change them and to reorient them and reestablish them in a right relationship. And so, it, you know, we, we, we tend to think it's uh, kind of sophisticated to allow things to go, to turn our back. But Nehemiah is a gift of God to his people. Nehemiah loves his people enough. Nehemiah loves what the work that God has done there enough that he comes to them and he's willing to disrupt and make things difficult for folks so that they will repent and turn back. That's a good thing. Anytime uh, people repent. Anytime people hear that they have sinned and they receive it, they confess it, and they repent is a great gift and a mercy for God. And we should look for that. We need that dynamic in and among us, right? We need to be able to uh, know that you love me enough that you won't let me wander but so far, Right? That's a good thing. That's a, that's a safety net uh, that the people of God provide for us. And so that's, that we, as, as we look at this, we, we should see that that is exactly uh, uh, what the message of this is, is that Nehemiah is God's instrument to intervene in a situation that is getting out of hand to say, no, 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 no. Remember the commitments you made. Remember the commitments that God made. Change. So that's a good thing. That's a gift of grace and mercy to the people. But the other thing is this. 
It is a good thing that the story ends this way because it leaves us hanging in a sense and leaves us desiring something bigger to happen, right? In fact, that's kind of the role of the the Old Testament, right? What the Old Testament shows us, as the text we read from uh, Hebrews earlier uh, tells us, is that this this uh, all of the the encounters, all of the stories, all of those things that happen in the Old Testament are pointers to us that we need something outside of human effort and human will to make the world right. That we need something outside of human innovation and human ingenuity and, and human decision to restore God's good creation. And so this should leave us sobered up, yes, and, and aware and maybe even a little bit sad, but also it living in eager anticipation that God would send his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law. That what this situation, as bad as it is, is not a hopeless situation. Because just as God sent Nehemiah, who could make some nibble around the edges about some changes that needed to be made, he would send his own son who would make full atonement. He would send his own son who would redeem those who struggled under this yoke of disobedience. And he would deliver them once and for all. And that we look forward to that day. So here's the thing, you know, we, all of our attempts at establishing human righteousness, all of our attempts and false beliefs and perfectibility, and don't, we all struggle with perfectibility, right? Um, And it is interesting too, right? I mean, we, we, we believe that we have made so much progress that, uh, you know, there's certain things that would never be true of us, right? We look back on generations past and we see their sin rightfully where they sinned and we think we would never be like that. Really? That's why Nehemiah says, hey, remember Solomon, he was great. He was the wisest man who ever lived and he fell, fell away. So that should serve us as a warning, not of, of, of our prideful ability to, to manage life or to perfect ourselves, but to recognize that we need the work of Christ. We need him to redeem us. We need his spirit. We need his help. And, but, but more than that, we need him to come and to ultimately make things right. Because you and I will not perfect the world or perfect ourselves before he comes. And that uh, the, the thing that we long for, for the living happily ever after, will only come in the ever after. When Jesus comes and takes us and makes the world right once and for all. That's what we look forward to. That's what our hope and our trust is in. And that's what actually energizes us uh, to faithfulness even in a world that is broken and struggling. Let's pray today that Jesus would do that work in us, that he would change us and that he would energize us uh, by a vision of the world that uh, he is even now redeeming. Let's pray. Lord, we we need a sense of this today. Thanks so much that you sent Nehemiah uh, to people who were stumbling, people who were kind of cluelessly unaware of uh, uh, their... um, well, their failure, 
thanks that you love us enough to only allow us to wander so far before you confront our sin. Lord, give us the courage to do that and also give us the humility uh, to receive uh, challenge. Help us in that. Lord, as we are reminded today that uh, um, all work this side of your your, uh, second coming uh, leaves much undone, I pray still that you would energize us by the vision of your kingdom fully come, fully established as your righteousness covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. So bless us today, help us today, encourage our hearts today, we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's uh, confess our sins.